0: the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Directive Hello everyone and welcome to episode 50 of Earth Destruction Directive. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Can you believe we are at episode 50? I can Part of me can't believe we're here, and part of me can't believe it took me this long to make it to episode 50, but you know, when you go uh, several times where you go three, four months without posting an episode, it takes a little bit longer uh, than than normally would uh, take. Uh, It's been uh, an amazing journey over the past five plus years that I have been recording this show and sharing it with everybody out there, so... I want to thank everyone who stuck with me. I want to thank everyone who's come um, uh, along for the ride with me. And if this is your first episode, welcome. And I hope you enjoy uh, what we are talking about today. And we have a doozy for you today. I figured for episode 50, uh should do a classic of the genre. And that is what we have. We are taking a look at the 1956 legendary Toho uh, monster movie, Rodan. One of my favorites from childhood and one of the very best uh, films that Toho produced of their kaiju Iga over their entire existence. And we also have the next issue of Marvel Comics, Godzilla King of the Monsters, issue number six, the ongoing saga of Godzilla inside the Marvel Universe. But before we get into that, we've got a little bit of news to cover here. Now, the top news is that Shin Godzilla has officially been announced for limited theatrical engagement from October 11th through October 18th from Funimation Films here in the United States. Uh, If you want to see if the film is playing near you, go to Fandango.com and search for Shin Godzilla. Now, remember, that's the official title now in the U.S. for this release. is Shin, S-H-I-N, Godzilla. Even though the previous international title, of course, was Godzilla Resurgence. Uh, It is playing in Greenville, so I will be there. I don't have to drive to Columbia, but frankly, I would have driven to Columbia if I had to. Uh, It is going to be the uncut Japanese version with subtitles, so no international dub or anything like that. So I am very excited. I have never seen a a Japanese Godzilla film in theaters um, in Japanese. I've only seen, uh, you know, the American release of Godzilla 2000, and then of course the Riftrax version of Mothra from... uh, a little while ago as I'm recording this. So very excited. Shin Godzilla is making a lot of money in Japan. It's been very successful. Reviews have generally been very positive. So I am very much looking forward to going to see this in the uh, uh, the week of October 11th. So check Fandango. Check for your local theaters. And please go see Shin Godzilla. And, uh, you know, uh, I got a feeling there might be a guiding episode around going to see that. But, you know, more on that in the future. Uh, speaking of uh, The King of the Monsters, as I am recording this in about a, less than a week's time on September 13th, we will see the Blu-lay and DVD release of Godzilla 1984 aka Return of Godzilla This is of course from Kraken releasing Section 23 Films and uh, this will be the full Japanese version along with the international dub version not Godzilla 1985, so if you like Raymond Burr, you're going to have to I know. Uh, hold on to your VHS copy for a little bit longer, uh, probably a lot longer, but that's okay. Just is still a big milestone as far as I'm concerned with the release of Return of Godzilla on DVD in any capacity, any official capacity here in the U.S. Way back in episode three of this show, I covered the Japanese version of uh, of Godzilla 1984. It is an excellent movie. I'm a big fan. And I hope that now that it's going to be available commercially on Blu-ray and DVD, it will find more of an audience uh, here in the States. So be sure to check that out. If you want, go to Amazon.com. Use the Amazon.com link on 2 and you can pick that up. I think the Blu-ray this morning was $9.99 and the DVD was $7.99. And uh, Kraken Releasing does a good job with these. There are three Showa releases that they did, which were... Uh, They did Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, and Godzilla vs. Gigan were all very nice releases. So I have have little doubt that this release will be of similar high quality. Uh, Finally, want to put a book review in here. Just earlier this week, I finished reading A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series by David Callet. This is published by McFarland. Uh, I got this as a gift several years ago, and I've actually read bits and pieces over that time because as a filmography book, it's broken down uh, each film is its own chapter. So I've read, as I've reviewed and watched different films, I've read different chapters of the book, but I finally sat down and read the whole thing. And what this is, it's a, it's a critical filmography and historical overview of the Godzilla series through 1995, so through Godzilla vs. Destoroyah. Uh, which was the latest film as of the writing. In fact, the American Godzilla film had not even come out yet. There is some discussion of uh, the the failed Jan de Bont version and, you know, the current developments, current at that time, developments for what would become uh, Godzilla 97, but uh, obviously had not for what would become Godzilla 98. But uh, as of when Callot wrote the book, it had not actually been released yet. Um it's very good. It's very well-researched, very uh, very in-depth in the behind-the-scenes and background, especially on some of the films that kind of get glossed over, you know, some of the back half of the show of films. Uh, but Callot gives each film equal um, attention and really uh, does his due diligence and does his research and presents it in a very easy to uh um, digest manner. Uh, also does talk about some outside influences on the series, things that were going on in Japan as well as the Japanese film industry, Japanese television industry. Also has a chapter devoted each to Rodan and Mothra as even though they technically are not part of the series, are very crucial to the Godzilla series along with the development of it. Really excellent insight. Uh, it makes some some logical connections that you, know, you maybe didn't really necessarily think about. Uh, for example, on Godzilla vs. Gigan, he talks about the nature of monsters as commercial entities being explored in that film and how that theme ties into the actual production of the film. And so it's it's very good reading. I would definitely pick it up. I don't agree with every point that he makes, but I don't like reading books necessarily where I agree with every point I like being able to be challenged to think about new things and maybe say well I disagree with that a good example is he talks about the Marvel Godzilla series how they scrubbed out uh, the concept of Godzilla's fire being uh, you know being nuclear radiation and not being just fire And I don't agree with that because so far what we've seen is Mensch makes a point of talking about it being a torrent of radiation, not just fire, even though it's drawn as red fire and not, you know, blue-white radiation. So, but like I said, it's good to have, uh, read stuff that you disagree with to help you kind of work your way through your thoughts and opinions. Uh, I really, I would like we could get a third edition, which would cover the Millennium films and the two Amerigoji films, but... uh, as of right now, that the second edition is the latest one. You can pick it up on Amazon and get it from uh, McFarland directly. McFarland has lots of great genre books, uh, you know, uh, f- covering science fiction, horror, monsters, all sorts of stuff. This, I'd, I saw their table at Gen Con a couple of weeks ago in Indianapolis, and I was just like, oh, my God, there's so many books here I could buy. But, you know, I'd, n- not wanting to, to really bust my bank, plus carry all those books back with me. Uh, limited my purchases. But but yes, definitely check out uh, David Caller's A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series. Really worth uh, reading and worth checking out. So, hope you give that a try. Alright, I am going to take a quick break and we will be right back and we're going to take a look at Rodan here on Earth Destruction Directive.
1: Hello ladies and
0: gentlemen, this is Jason Jackanetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening.
1: But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the queen of space walks in and puts a blast in your
0: face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you
1: can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me.
0: Doctor, it burns when I pee. Me too, thanks to Atomic Flamin' Hot cheez the hottest cheese-flavored,
1: puff corn snack you can buy without a prescription! Wow, my God, that burns! But these Atomic Flamin' Hot cheez are worth it! Look for Atomic Flamin' Hot cheez behind the counter at your local pharmacy, or in your grocer's snack aisle. Atomic Flamin' Hot cheez So
0: good, they make it burn when you pee. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Rodan was released on December 26, 1956 in Japan. Was released the following summer, August 6, 1957 in the U.S. by King Brothers Features. Our director is Ishiro Honda. The writers are Takeshi Kimura and Takeo Murata. Music by Akira Ifukube and special effects by Eji Subaraya. In the small mining village of Kitamatsu, two miners have gone missing. The two men, Goro and Yoshi, had brawled earlier that day, and after they entered the mine to start their shift, the shaft had quickly flooded. Shigeru Kawamura, the safety engineer at the mine, heads below to investigate and makes a gruesome discovery, Yoshi's lacerated corpse. Cause of death revealed to be a series of deep gashes. With Goro still unaccounted for, gossip spreads that he is involved in the death. Shigeru is personally affected by this incident, since his fiancée Kiyo is Goro's sister. Soon after, two more miners and a policeman are dragged under the flooded shaft and also killed in the same manner. That night in the village, Shigeru and Kiyo are suddenly attacked by an unknown creature resembling a gigantic insect, the Mega Neuron. They flee and soon the police are hunting the creature, which manages to kill two officers before it escapes back into the mine. Soon after, Shigeru and a group of police and soldiers head into the mine to hunt down the monster. In the deepest part of the shaft, they discovered the butchered body of Goro. The Mega Neuron emerges and chases the men back. With the monster impervious to any kind of gunfire, Shigeru takes action, releasing the mine cart, smashing the Mega Neuron. When he goes back to retrieve Goro's body, Shigeru is menaced by another Mega Neuron, and then caught in a cave-in and trapped. The next day, an earthquake suddenly strikes the area, and rumors begin to circulate that Mount Aso might be on the verge of an eruption. When the police arrive at the base of the volcano to investigate, they discover Shigeru, wandering around the epicenter, totally amnesic. Meanwhile, in Kyushu, an airbase receives an alert from one of their jets, which has observed an unidentified flying object performing impossible maneuvers at supersonic speeds. He is ordered to pursue the object at distance, but as he follows it, the object suddenly changes course and turns around, flying straight towards the jet and destroying it. Soon after, reports from all over the world come in about the UFO. In addition, a newly married couple disappears in Japan, around Mount Aso. When the authorities develop the film from the newlyweds' camera, they discover a photograph of what appears to be a gigantic wing. They match the photo with the drawing of a pteranodon. Meanwhile, Shigeru's treatment is progressing slowly. One day, Kiyo shows him the eggs of her pet birds. As one of the eggs hatches, a terrible memory returns to Shigeru. Deep within the mine, Shigeru awoke to his horror that he was surrounded by hundreds of Mega Neuron. Worse was the giant egg sitting right in the middle of the cave, which promptly shattered and hatched. From out of the shell emerged a gigantic, winged monster which began to eat the Mega Neuron. The shock of this memory restores Shigeru's full memory. Shigeru confirms that the creature he saw did indeed resemble a pteranodon. He and a group of police and scientists once again descend into the mine and recover a fragment of the shell before a rock slide forces them to flee back to the surface. In the lab, Dr. Kashigawa is able to determine the size of the egg and its age 200 million years old. Kashigawa tells the JSDF that the UFO seen flying all across the world at supersonic speeds is a gigantic pteranodon he has dubbed Rodan. How Rodan could have resurfaced after millions of years is also a mystery, but Kashigawa theorizes that nuclear bomb testing, which loosened the Earth and opened cavities to long-buried crevices and caves, might be the possible cause. Rodan emerges from the ground near Mount Aso. The creature takes flight and begins to head for Kyushu, with a squadron of JSDF planes hot on his tail. They pursue Rodan over the city and eventually succeed in forcing him into the river, albeit at the cost of nearly the entire squadron. Rodan emerges and flies over to Fukuoka, where the sonic waves and windstorms from its wings lay waste to the entire city and the attacking JSDF forces. Suddenly the JSDF reports that another Rodan has been spotted heading toward the city, explaining the earlier widespread sightings. The second Rodan flies over and the force of the wind shear created rips apart buildings. After leveling the city and leaving the remaining buildings in flames, the two Rodans fly away. The JSDF formulate a plan to attack the Rodans. After ascertaining their location at their old nest at the base of Mount Asso, the military plans to shell the cave opening and bury the Rodans alive. One resident objects to this plan, fearful that it might trigger the volcano into an eruption, destroying the village with lava and rock military commander agrees this might happen, but insists that it is preferable to letting the Rodans escape. Just moments before the strike is to begin, Shigeru is joined by Kia, who stays with him, refusing to evacuate the doomed village. The two leave the area and return to safety, and the military begins its attack. Soon, the volcano begins to smew smoke and lava into the sky. One of the Rodans emerges, but it is soon overcome by the fumes. As the second Rodan arrives, the first loses altitude and finally falls into the stream of lava flowing down the side of Mount Vesuvius. The second Rodan also descends and lands in the lava, joining its mate in death on the slopes of the erupting volcano. Yeah, Rodan is a uh, certified classic, and uh, I know my synopsis was a bit wordy, but there's, there's a decent amount of plot in here and I really wanted to give everybody a flavor for what's what this story is really about, because it uh, it has a lot to cover in it, and it's a really, really darn good film, and I really, uh, I'm really i excited to talk about it, and I'm excited to get into it. So let, let's not beat around the bush, let's get right into the notes. Oh, the first thing you'll notice is it is in color. This is the first of Toho's monster films, or kaiju-iga, to be in color, and it looks wonderful. It's uh, you know widescreen Toho scope and color, it's a revelation compared to some of the earlier films, including, of course, uh, Gojira and uh, Godzilla Raids again. Both of those films, of course, in black and white. And now that they're both beautiful in their own right, but there's something just visually arresting about this film, and the color really adds to it. And, uh, you know, as, as we would move, obviously, going forward, all of their features would be in color except Varan, uh, which we discussed its TV movie origins was the reason it was in black and white. And I think the the kaiju Iga and the kaiju genre really kind of came into its own in color as uh, far as how it developed uh, through the 60s and into the 70s. Now, the U.S. version of this film, which I am very familiar with and having watched many, many times from my childhood, actually opens up with stock footage of nuclear tests. This is unrelated to the rest of the movie, other than the one line that perhaps nuclear tests, uh, you know, disturbed the Earth in such a way to allow, uh, you know, warmth, warm air and moisture in to let the egg uh, come out of its suspended animation and to revive the mega-neuron. I've always been a fan of this stock footage, just because I saw it when I was a kid, but looking at it now, it's kind of obvious that it's really tacked on, it has a different narrator than the rest of the film, And it just, you know, it doesn't really mean anything. It does include the classic uh, shot of all the drone ships being destroyed by the Mushroom Cloud, which would get used many times over the years in many different films. It's one of my favorite pieces of uh, military stock footage. So I'll always appreciate it, even though it's really not part of the film and only exists in the American version. Uh, Now, as far as the American version, and continuing in that theme, Key Luke as the fire monster he also voices shigeru so it it's kind of weird when you watch these two films because for years i watched rodan and then only uh you know after i was well versed in godzilla did i ever see um, what was then called godzilla raids again on vhs and it's it's shigeru except it's not it's even and, uh but even with the narration you know as opposed to uh you know kind of driving the story along Um, the narration here is much better than In Godzilla Raids Again. There's less of simply describing everything that's happening and more giving insight into what Shigeru and the other men are thinking and feeling, which I I think serves it well. Uh, Some folks don't like Luke's narration, kind of overwrought, but I enjoy it. And again, I understand that may be kind of my bias, having grown up watching the American version, uh, but it is a little weird not to get it in the Japanese version, I do have to admit, because I'm so used to and expecting it. So I, for one, really appreciate it.
2: Yoshi was dead when they carried him from the mine. But he didn't die from drowning. He had been killed. More than killed, he had been slaughtered like an animal. Even in death, there was a look of horror on his face. As if in those last moments, he had seen something dreadful and terrible beyond words.
0: Now early on in the film, after they find Yoshi's body, we see Yoshi's grieving widow and her kids. And then later on, uh, the other women in the village have to restrain her because she wants to go and attack Keo because she's mad that, uh, obviously, her husband is dead. But, you know, Keo, her, um, her fiancé, and her brother are apparently uh, still out there and that her brother may have been the one to kill her, uh, her husband. Um, there's a fair amount of village life in this film as opposed to the more sophisticated urban life you know, uh, you know, in Tokyo, type of stuff that we'd see in more than 1960s entries. And, you know, it's some real human emotion here. You know, one of the, one of the uh, aspects of Gojira that, uh, that doesn't get repeated very often in the Godzilla series and in all of Toho's films is the idea of showing the aftermath of a monster attack, the, the real human suffering. In uh, the American version of Godzilla, Raymond Burr's uh, line is uh, the human wreckage around me. Um, here it does it on a more personal scale because mega Neuron are not, I mean, they're giant insects, but they're not giant monsters per se. You know, they're more human-sized monsters, but the impact on Yoshi's family is, you know, it, it, it's very realistic and it adds something to that and it kind of gives it um, a degree of realism that you don't always get in, in this type of film. The scene of the two miners and the policeman going and investigating in the flooded mine, Uh, they tie themselves together and then they're one by one pulled down into the water until finally the last one cuts himself free and and is then attacked by the the mega-neuron in a silhouette that we don't actually actually see it at that point. This scene always creeped me out as a kid and it's still very effectively done to this day. Um, you know, it is, it's just something very spooky about the mine. You're deep within the bowels of the earth. You know, it's no easy way to get out of there. You're surrounded on all sides by tons and tons of rock. And then they're going into a flooded area, into water. So, you know, that there's, and you can't see in it. So it's always that element of, uh, you know, realistic danger. And then being pulled down into something that you can't see. It's, all, it's very effective and really speaks to the front half of this uh, film being not so much a kaiju film as it is a straight horror film. There's a lot of elements of this that are similar to uh, the film Them, and this a lot of this is uh, somewhat intentional, uh, depending on who you, who you read. But it are certainly drawing from the same sort of inspiration, and uh, I think that it, it's definitely improved by having this really kind of uh, straight-up horror film motif going on early on in the film. It kind of keeps you on your toes about where the story is going. Now, continuing in that trend, the Mega Neuron in the village, where it crashes into Kyo's house and attacks and menaces Kyo and Shigeru, is uh, really well done. It's very cool, and it's real surprising, because you're expecting, especially in the US dub, where it's called Rodan the Flying Monster, and now you've got this giant insect thing. And uh, it's really, it's small-scale monster work, which... Toho did some small-scale effects work of this type on, you know, their, their mutant movies like the H-Man and uh, the Human Vapor, Secret of the Talegion, stuff like that. Not so much with their Daikaiju, obviously, because those tended to be large monsters, and so you had to deal with scale. Uh, the Mega Neuron are bettering their size and era. Uh, they're convincing. They move really well. They've got a really creepy sound effect. <coughs> And they just make for a memorable little monster. And you could see almost making an entire film based around these, especially as uh, we see later that it's not just one, it's a whole, uh, you know, whole nest of these things. And so that also drives kind of the them aspect. You know, them was not just a single ant, them was a whole nest of ants. And that's what kind of made them, you know, even more menacing and creepy. And if you're interested in learning more about the movie Them, please go check out my brother's podcast, Bugs, Bots, and Babes, also here on the Two True Freaks Network. And uh, in one of the early episodes of that show, uh, him and my father discuss the movie Them in great detail, and uh, it's really a good episode, so please check that out. Now, when they're down in the mine, we get a cave-in, and this is followed the next day with the scenes of the earthquake. Now, these are are really well done, I think. Uh, They remind me a bit of some of the effects from the Mysterians which came after this, where they were collapsing, um, you know, parts... They were doing causing cave-ins and earthquakes, and so it was... They were having uh, models of, uh, you know, the rolling fields and hills, and they were collapsing down underneath them, because in that case, they, you know, Mogra was drilling underneath them. Here it's uh, seismic activity. But it's well done, and uh, they're very, very... They hold up, you know? It's, uh, there's something to be said about those model work shots that uh, even, even non-kaiju fans, those who dislike... Kaiju in general, just because they don't like men in rubber suits or whatever, they they treat that as a pejorative instead of a performance. I think even even folks of that nature can appreciate the model work when you're showing destruction like that. Um, it's the same type of stuff that we'd get in a disaster movie. Uh, here, it's in a science fiction setting, even though it's a natural disaster, and it's just really. I think they they hold up real well. They they scale nicely. The the model work is very nicely detailed, and uh, it it you know again for a. For a film that's produced in and set in a country that, you know, earthquakes and, uh, you know, that type of seismic activity is a kind of commonplace, it's a very real and legitimate fear to have these massive, uh, you know, seismic events and earthquakes and cave-ins and the like. When the UFO, so-called UFO, uh, is beginning to be sighted, I like that the sightings are all over the Pacific. It's not just in different parts of Japan, but we see it in, it's cited it's in China, it's sighted in Manila, it's sighted in, you know... Uh, Hong Kong and the Midway so it's all over the Pacific which is a nice touch it shows again the uh, the speed and power of this uh, you know uh, of Rodan the two rodans of how far they can fly and how quickly to be spotted all over the world like this the scene with the young lovers is uh Oh, it's, you know, it's one of those things. They introduce these two young newlyweds and you know they're going to die because otherwise why would they introduce them? Uh, there is a really a kind of funny little throwaway line where the, the husband is setting up his camera very carefully and uh, you know trying to get a picture of his wife sitting in front of this outcropping and she complains, are you taking a picture of me or the mountain? And uh, he's like, well, I'd, I'd like to get both, you know. So he has a, an honest answer. Uh, this is the type of uh, you know, young couple we might see in an American creature feature type film. Um, you know, go and uh, go off and be young lovers together somewhere, only to be killed off-screen by the monster, and then the authorities puzzle over you know their their death. And again, because this is a Japanese film, they specifically ask the question: Well, could it be a suicide? You know, <laughs> because uh, that was not the taboo, I guess, in Japan that it is here, especially given the uh, you know the mid '50s. Uh, I was uh, you know it, uh, it still kind of amazes me that they kept that line in the, uh, in the U.S. dub when they easily could have exercised it, but they made a good point. It's like, no, they, they were happy and they look at the pictures and they're happy and smiling together the, when they look at the negatives. And of course, that's how they find the, the picture of the wing. I always thought that was a nice touch. And again, reminds me a bit of them in that we find evidence in odd places and that little things can, can be pieced together to form a hypothesis, though uh, that is, although uh, a bit improbable. It's the old Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle thing. It's like, well, when you remove the impossible, whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth. So whether we're talking about giant ants or a giant, uh, you know, revived pterodactyl, then, uh, you you know, if, it, if the evidence points to it, maybe it's the truth. Now, uh, after Shigeru sees the egg begin to hatch, we get his flashback, and this is uh, a, ve- a very, very uh, fan-favorite, popular, well-regarded scene, and it's a good... It's easy to see why, because we've built up the Mega Neuron as these horrific threats. And every every human that comes in contact with them, for the most part, gets slashed apart and killed. And then we see Rodan hatch out of the egg and flop all around and just start eating them. Just pick them up, one bite, swallow them whole, and they're tiny in his beak. The, the scale here is fantastic. They've done such a good job of establishing that the Mega Neuron are bigger than humans and how powerful and destructive and uh, you know, lethal they are. And Rodan just eats them up. You know, just eats them up without, you know, just as a snack, because he's just been he's just been born. It's just a great scene. And it really it that's always stuck with me because it speaks again to the scope of everything and the scale of everything. Because we always, you know, in especially in these Showa films, monsters are all pretty much the same size. You know? But here we're showing that creatures can exist at more than one size and, uh, that there is in fact a pecking order to them, that there is not, um, you know, that the mega neuron are menacing to humans, but they're, you know, they're, uh, they're insignificant to Rodan. So what does that make us to Rodan, you know? Uh, the, and the other thing that's nicely done in here, and this is something we'd see several times in, uh, especially in the Godzilla series, it's the impact that the giant monster has on the single individual. You know, it, uh, when, um... When we see a you know, Godzilla or Rodan or whichever monster we're talking about wading through a city, we don't think about the individual impact. You know, We think about the, the – a lot of times as kaiju fans, we're watching it looking at the model work and the details on the suit and how it's done and all that. We're, we're enjoying that aspect of it. We don't think about the impact on the characters on a singular level. Uh, in Gojira, this is done very well, a couple of different times. But uh, I'm thinking specifically of the mom with her children, and then the reporter on Tokyo Tower. Uh, but here, we get it with Shigeru, and the impact that, that this horrible, nightmarish uh, tableau has on Shigeru is for him to repress it all, and uh, develop amnesia and not remember anything. So I think that was really well done, and it's uh, it's done... It's not done in kind of a ridiculous way. It's done a little subtly that this is so awful that he blocks it all out. Uh, But you can believe it, considering. Uh, Based on the picture, they determined that Rodan would have a 100-foot wingspan in the uh, U.S. dub. Um, This doesn't really jive with how big Rodan is the next time he shows up in uh, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Because Godzilla had been established at being 400 feet tall, and he and Rodan are the same height. So a wingspan of 100 feet doesn't really work with that. You you know, there's no use trying to determine size, especially in Showa films. Monsters are the size they are. Just go with it. Now, in the Heisei films, especially in the Godzilla films, there was... Godzilla did grow larger as that series went on because he kept absorbing more nuclear material and more energy. But here in the Showa, we're just going to accept the sizes as they are and move on. Because if you start trying to figure out... Uh, this guy should be that size, or anything, because the size is not important. What's important is that they're gigantic. The specific details, despite, uh, you know, Japanese otaku and American fanboys love, <clears throat> I should say, American fanboys and fangirls, to be fair, of statistics when it comes to monsters, especially in the Ultra series. They love saying, he's this tall, he weighs this many tons. Um, it ultimately doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, it's one of the old things. Like, well, how come Gigant can fly faster than Rodan? It's like, well, because stat inflation, because Gigant was introduced later. It's like, really, he shouldn't be able to fly faster than Rodan from a narrative standpoint. So, you know, the stats are neat, and sometimes you can break them out just to be, uh, you know, have interesting tidbits. But I don't. I try not to get bogged down in them because they don't. You know, they're not. They're not real consistent. So, a statistic that's not consistent doesn't really add much benefit as the authorities uh observe mount aso from the helicopters we see human remains uh this is again pretty creepy and not really something we'd see all too often um toho monsters don't typically eat humans uh, of course G- gaira is a big uh, you know exception to this rule in some ways he might be the exception that proves the rule uh but that that always done it you know I always thought that was a nice creepy touch with that and then here at uh, Mount Esso when Rodan emerges and we get to see him fully for the first time with his giant wingspan just flapping and uh, flying off. And he's, uh, he really looks great. The Rodan uh, suit and puppets used in this film are very streamlined, very lean, very menacing. Uh, they look a lot different. In, in many ways than Rodan as we would see him in the Godzilla series. His next appearance in 1964 was Ghidorah, a three-headed monster, and his look is pretty vastly different. I mean, he still has, you know, the same basic shape and the wings, but he doesn't have the animalistic tendencies that he does here. He looks more humanized in those films. I like them both. But this one is one of the best Daikaiju suits and designs of, the, uh, of any era as far as I'm concerned. There's a reason why Rodan is as popular as he is, and I think this is part of it. The effects are also really interesting here because while he does crash through some buildings, most of the time Rodan destroys things by flying really fast over them or by flapping his wings to create uh, you know, extremely powerful wind. So what you get is a situation where you've got a miniature city or miniature defense vehicles that destroy themselves. Uh, the great scene uh, when he flies off the flies out of the mountain and wings towards the city is there's a jeep that is uh, carrying a correspondence to communicate back to headquarters and he flies over it so fast that it flips end over end and crashes roof first into the uh, into the, the rock outcropping. It's just a fantastically done scene it doesn't involve a monster either stepping on kicking or interacting with directly anything it's just the wind that's caused by his presence and is the air being moved by his wings causes this Jeep to smash and it's just a greatly put together scene the sound design here is excellent it really sounds like the rending of metal as this uh, army Jeep is just smashed to just dashed on these rocks really great another aspect that some people who have never seen this film will be surprised by there are two Rodans now this is a big difference between the American and Japanese versions of this film, mainly when they arrive. When the first Rodan emerges from Mount Aso and flies off towards um, uh, Kyushu, okay, in the Japanese version, that one goes and uh, does his has the fight with the JSDF and then goes to Fukuoka and uh, then uh, you know is, is attacked and destroys most city, and then the second one comes out. Now in the American version. Before the first one makes it to to um, Kyushu, excuse me, the second one emerges. So that we are introduced to the second one much earlier than we are in the Jap- in the U.S. version than we are in the Japanese version. Personally, I prefer the U.S. version here. I think it it uh, it makes the surprise uh, be a little more useful. No, you know, by revealing it a little earlier, we now have two monsters attacking instead of one. And it also kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess it just sells it a little better for me. And this part of this, again, might be my bias for my familiarity with the American version. But I think this works better than the Japanese version. It just gives us more time with this concept and more ability to explore it a little bit. Uh They are, it is very neat that there are two of them. And there's some really great scenes in Fukuoka where, you know, the one Rodan is on the ground and we see the other flying overhead and the uh, the amount of uh, air that they're moving is just tearing the city apart. Now, I mentioned Fukaoka a couple of times. In the U.S. dub, Fukaoka is replaced with the city of Sasebo. Now, Sasebo was used in this way because it would be more well-known in the U.S. as at the time there was a U.S. military base there. Now, what's funny is that there is uh, a shot of the actual Sasebo and early on, during the UFO sighting sequence, where they come out of the the uh, the, uh, the station, the train station there, and they look around, and you can see it's a Sasebo Station very clearly uh, uh, above the door in English. So I thought that was funny. Now, during the attack, we get the collapse of the bridge, where Rodan flies over the long bridge very fast, and the, the members of the bridge just give way, and it kind of just crumbles onto itself and falls down. It just, it's... You know, it's just a great scene. This is in the trailer. That's how classic this is. And it's just a, you know, I think of Rodan destroying a city by flying over it. That's kind of the scene that immediately uh, springs to mind. Also interesting from that scene is that we find out that Rodan, despite being a flying creature uh, from deep inside of a cave, can survive underwater, which um, uh, to me was always important because of the end of Monster Zero, where Godzilla and Rodan crash into King Ghidorah and then they all tumble into the water, and we see King Ghidorah emerge and fly away, which like, well, we don't see Godzilla or Rodan. Well, both of them can survive in the water, so that's okay. That's not a problem. As I said, the city is literally blown away. It's destroying itself as it, you know, uh, shingles are ripped off of roofs, walls collapse, cars go flying in every direction. It's just fantastic. It's just really neat stuff because it's so different than what we got with uh, other uh, Monster on the Loose uh, stories from... Uh, Toho not not versus movies per se but even in the versus movies you know we'd see similar stuff uh, a few years later in Mothra same kind of idea of Mothra's presence being uh, destructive just because of the amount of wind that she generates when she flaps her wings whereas Rodan um, you know it's more malevolent here and it's just really well done these the effects in this film would get reused several times. Uh, I want to say that stock footage of this is in Monster Zero, and then a few other clips here and there get used um, again. It and it holds up; it holds up really well, so that's not really a complaint, you know. And nobody likes stock footage, but when the stock footage is well done, at least that's something. Uh, during this sequence, we also get the uh, marionette head of Rodan as he looks around and uh, you know kind of observes what's going on and screeches his uh, defiance at the JSDF. Uh, this marionette head is, is pretty well realized. They don't focus on it too long. It's better than the marionette head we get in Ghidorah to Three-Headed Monster, which looks a bit more cartoonish. Uh, also in this scene, we get to see where Rodan kind of huffs out some kind of breath attack of some kind. This has never really been explained, and mostly I just kind of chalk it up to him kind of breathing uh, smoke just because he's a creature from inside the earth and just letting it slide. Uh, in the lead-up to the final attack, Keo comes to Shigeru and refuses to leave his side. More on that in a little bit. Uh, during the final attack, we get uh, a combination of JSDF hardware attacking uh, the Rodans and attacking the, vo- the uh, Mount Asso, and then the volcano itself erupts. So, to me, I kind of I looked at this and kind of thought, I was like, okay, so basically technology and nature are both needed to defeat the Rodans. Because you know, they would the eruption have triggered without them attacking it, or if they, the eruption had been triggered, could they have gotten out if not for the military attacking them? It's never addressed either way, it's kind of just food for thought, but given that, um, you know, it's, it's where we are in the Showa period, and where we are in the development of the Toho Kaiju I still thought this was, was pretty neat, uh, using the two of them together uh, to destroy them. And now, remember what I said a real bit ago about Kiyo and Shigeru? That's what we get with the Rodans, as the two of them emerge and uh, try to fly out, but they're overwhelmed by the fumes and the smoke and the heat coming from out of the volcano. And as one of them falls in, the other one, you know, tries to escape, but eventually gives in to its fate and joins its mate in the fiery demise. And we get, as in the U.S. version, uh, a great narration from Shigeru uh, describing the death throes of these two creatures. He calls them the strongest, swiftest creatures that ever breathed, and he's speaking very nobly of them. And how, you know, it's, it's the old rub that, you know, monsters, it's, it's you know, they're born too, too heavy, too tall, too strong. And that's their tragedy, as Ishiro Honda said. So it's just a great ending. And it's one that really brings out the pathos for two creatures that haven't earned any pathos through the rest of the film. But they're still living, breathing creatures. And it's a horrible way to die. And Shigeru wonders if he will be able to die as well you know, dying um, because your your mate is gone and you make that sacrifice to be with them if through the end. The narration also ends with a great question of whether there are even more terrible things still working in the darkness, which I always liked. Again, some uh, I've read some critiques of this saying it's a little too overwrought and over the top, but for me it works perfectly because it's very earnest. It's not meant to be hammy or silly, it's meant to be earnest, and I think uh, Key Luke's performance goes a long way to selling that earnestness and really putting over the ending uh, to this film. It's just a fantastic way to end this film. Uh, Rodan is one of the all-time greats, a true classic of the genre. It builds tension and horror in the first half very well, before transitioning to a monster-on-the-loose epic, an absolute epic in the second half. Both parts work extremely well, I think. There's great character work and excellent effects in both parts of it. They come together really well to tell one coherent story. It looks really great in color and widescreen Toho Scope. Uh, They really use a lot of the frame. We get to see all of those effects in in big, bold colors up there on the screen. Rodan himself is a legendary Daikaiju. His debut does not disappoint. Uh, As I said earlier, in many ways, this is the Japanese equivalent of them. And it works just as well as them. And uh, the two of them are, as far are they're, they're equals in my mind, as far as their effectiveness as uh, science fiction monster films. If you have not seen Rodan, do yourself a favor and go watch it right now. Okay, I'll, I'll wait here. Now, if you want to watch it online, you can check it out on shoutfactorytv.com for free streaming. This is the US version, but it's available for free, uh, at least here in the US. If you'd like to own it, I would recommend the Classics Media double feature of Rodan and War of the Gargantuas. This was the last of the uh, Classics Media DVD releases that they did in the silver book-style cases, where they included the Japanese and English version of the film on there for both films, actually. But uh, since we haven't discussed War of the Gargantuas, I won't get into the details. This can be readily had for about 7 bucks on Amazon, and it's it's great. I mean... They uh there's a you know, you've you've got two films on one disc, so one of them always is always going to look a little bit softer, but both of the I think both the Japanese and US versions look great. They hold up really well. There's some nice uh little bonus features on there as well, but ultimately for seven bucks just to get the Japanese and American version of Rodan, never mind the War of the Gargantua side of this. Uh to me is just a value, a great value and totally worth picking up. So I would recommend you go to two true Click on the Amazon.com link and pick that up if you don't have it already. So, all right, uh, I'm gonna have to take a break after discussing one of my absolute all time favorites. So, why don't we take a break and uh, we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. <laughs>
2: When turned to weep on my shoulder, I realized the Rodans were doomed. The heat, the gases, the bombardment added to their bewilderment. Like Mars in those rivers of fire, they seemed almost to welcome the agonies of death. And when, still calling to each other, one of them fell at last into the molten lava stream, the other still refused to save itself. The last of their kind, masters of the air and earth, the strongest, swiftest creatures that ever breathed. Now they sank against the earth like weary children. Each had refused to live without the other, and so they were dying together. I wondered whether I, a 20th century man, could ever hope to die as well. It was as if something human were dying, as the flames consumed them in a fiery holocaust their last agony wails echoing in a mournful cry. We stood there staring with a strange fascination. All units return to base. I realize now that by the narrowest of margins, man had proved himself the stronger. But will it always be so? May not other and more terrible monsters even now be stirring in the darkness? And when at last they spring upon us, Can we be certain we shall beat them back a second time? The answer lies in the future. Our fears for now have gone up in flame and smoke.
0: Eons past. A monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But, awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. We are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel's Godzilla number 6 is cover dated January 1978 released on or about October 4th, 1977. This information comes, of course, from Mike's amazing world of comics at dcindexes.com The cover features Godzilla being captured by S.H.I.E.L.D. uh, being held uh, with a big harness around his neck inside of a giant machine of some kind. We see Dum Dum Duggan and Gabe Jones uh, looking on in the foreground. Uh, the copy says, Will this become the day of the giant killers? A monster enslaved. Uh, the colors are a bit garish. There's bright pink and bright red. Uh, the red on the background, pink on some of the um, the interior of the machine that is holding Godzilla. But overall, I really like uh, this design. It's a very nice, very striking image. Godzilla laid low by S.H.I.E.L.D., and uh, we get to see the trick that Trimpy uses a lot on this series and on Shogun Warriors where we've got figures for scale. In this case, we've got uh, three S.H.I.E.L.D. agents actually standing on Godzilla's back, kind of uh, securing the machine, and one's operating a radio just to show you the, the size, and we've got a series of them on the ground right in front of him. Uh, the nice little details as well, we see the scratch marks on the ramp that Godzilla has held on, where he's obviously been clawing at it as he was going down. His tongue is lolling out of his mouth, which is a very nice touch. So I, I do like this cover, even though, like I said, the colors are a bit garish and a bit one-note. But uh, part of that was the printing of the time, so I'm willing to give that a pass. All right, our writer is Doug Mench, artist, Herb Trimpey. Letterer is Bruce Patterson colorist Phil Rachelson, editor is Archie Goodwin, and our title is A Monster Enslaved. With a new helicarrier specifically designed for capturing Godzilla, codenamed Behemoth, SHIELD becomes aware that the monster is sleeping in a cave. Meanwhile, at the Stark Industries plant, Dr. Takaguchi puts the final touches on his SJ3RX Mecha Robo, and Agent Jimmy Wu and Tamara Hashioka begin a romance kinda... As she shoots him down. Meanwhile, young Robert Takaguchi believes that the Red Ronin, for the creature's benefit, decides to do something about the situation. Back at the cave, S.H.I.E.L.D. locates the cave where Godzilla is sleeping, and fills it with sufficient knockout gas to put the monster out cold, allowing them to load up the creature in the behemoth's massive holding container. Meanwhile, Robert enters the Red Ronin mecha and puts on its control helmet, but the feedback from the device immediately knocks the boy unconscious. After being deposited at a holding cell designed to hold him at a secure S.H.I.E.L.D. facility, Godzilla promptly awakens and then smashes his way out. Next issue, Enslaved No More, and in action for the first time, the most stupendously awesome new character in Marvel history, Future Fighter. Well, a very straightforward, very good issue this time out. And uh, I, you know, introducing some subplots which are going to burble along here and I think are going to become some some well-known stuff here. So let's get right into the notes. Uh, Page one, the splash page, shows Godzilla taking a swipe at uh, Gabe Jones in the little Dragonfly helicopter uh, as he kind of reaches over his back. Trimpy is definitely back. This is a very Herb Trimpy sort of image and it looks very good, and the Godzilla is back to looking like he did in the earlier issues before the fill-in. And I I appreciate it, because I like the consistency that Trimpy brings to Godzilla, so definitely good. Turning over now to page three, panel one. Once again, we get uh, the kind of traditional Trimpy look of Godzilla with a sumo sort of build. Uh, As he's walking into the cave, he's got a large stomach, you know, muscular arms and legs. And uh, definitely, uh, again, evoking the the sumo wrestler type of look. Then in panel three, we see Godzilla kind of going down and and dozing off and taking a nap. It's kind of a cute image. Uh, You see him just kind of head down and his eyes closed and asleep. Trimpe's work is, um, is less fluid, but I think it's better suited to the character of Godzilla than we got in the previous case or in his element drawing monsters. And so I, I think that's why the art, to me, is more pleasing in, in this issue. Uh, down the page, panel four, we get our first look at the Behemoth. It looks like a helicarrier mixed with a semi-truck. It's very 1970s, all slab-sided. It's kind of a dark uh, dark blue with some light blue accents. It's a very cool piece of mecha. I really like this. It looks like a—the It the name Behemoth is fitting, and it looks like— a helicarrier that could go toe-to-toe with the King of Monsters. So excellent design, once again, by Trimpy. Turning over now to page six, we are introduced to Hugh Howards, Ace Shield pilot. And uh, Howards goes on to become the main pilot for the Behemoth, uh, for the balance of the series. Um, He looks a lot like Tony Stark. And in fact, at first I thought it was Tony Stark with his uh, dark hair and mustache, uh, especially for this era, uh, which is kind of ironic considering he's named after Howard Hughes and the whole Howard Hughes-Tony Stark connection. Uh, so just uh, a bit a bit irony there, but uh, very neat to see uh, a new character introduced and one who will go on to become a recurring character in the series. So, uh, I doesn't get to do much this time out except fly the behemoth, but, uh, you know, everybody's got a job to do, right? On the next page, page 7, and then uh, panel 3, uh, we get the blueprints and the specifications for the SJ-3RX, a.k.a. Red Ronin. Uh, it's a very neat little piece of design work from Trimpy here because it shows the cutaways showing different parts where the main control area, explaining the solar blade, the magnetic defense field generator, power units, weapons magazines, all that kind of stuff. And it, uh, it has a nice little bit of... Uh, foreshadowing on the bottom it says partial cutaway plan of sj3rx and has an asterisk and the asterisk leads to a note says temporary code name only will respond only to name given it at time of activation by prime operator operates on only on voice uh voice plus slash or brainwave link so setting up the abilities of the red ronin here uh, and, and it's neat kind of in reverse because this kind of mecha work that we get here with the Red Ronin this is the same type of stuff we'd get from Trimpy on Shogun Warriors in fact uh, I want to say we got some cutaways like this on Shogun Warriors so very cool to see kind of the prehistory almost of that here with Red Ronin over now on uh, page 10 panel 2 Jimmy makes his move on Tamara and she shuts him down <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that, Jimmy. Even even offering to take her to go see Star Wars apparently has not won Tamara over to your charms. So hey, better luck next time, man. Over on page 14, panel two, uh, one of the accessory units to the behemoth is the Zil pods, which are little one-man pods. They are kind of vaguely uh, trapezoidal shaped, look like two trapezoids stuck together. They've got a big engine on the bottom and it looks like six wings pointing out of the sides and a clear glass dome. And we see um, uh, Dum-Dum's team launching in their Zilpods. These pods actually make the third flying personal vehicles in the series in the first six issues after the flight pods from the first issue and then the single seat dragonfly helicopters we've seen the last couple of issues um, again I, I do like that shield keeps rolling out more and more technology as they find their tech is insufficient to fight the king of the monsters they, they bring out new stuff this I can see Tony be Tony Stark being back and I was like what that didn't work all right, I'll go make something else, and uh, <laughs> and th- these are neat. I hope we see more of these uh, to go with the behemoth. I do like I like seeing the advancing of the technology, but what I also like is continuity, where we see a piece of Mecha has the same the same abilities, the same weaponry, the same accessory units, and about design, rather than oh we need something C- cook this up for this issue, that kind of thing. Over on um, page fifteen, panel five, it's Godzilla storms out of the cave and attacks shield. He has a yellowish glow all around him. Uh, I can only assume that this is uh, to show his spines lighting up as he is also breathing his atomic breath at that same time. Uh, it's a neat effect, kind of showing that, even though we don't actually see the spines, except for the few on his tail, because we're looking at him kind of straight on. But a neat effect, and uh, I, unfortunately this will be kind of lost in the essential, but it looks neat here. Just a subtle little yellow glow around him. Pages 16 and 17, as the gas overcomes Godzilla we get another great series of panels showing the the scale as uh, Godzilla falls you see these these giant trees at each wharfs and we see the behemoth there and the little zilpods and so we really get an idea of just how massive Godzilla is and then on page 17 panel one the shield agents are climbing up Godzilla to examine him And it's like, yeah, I hope they took their anti-radiation pills. I'm I'm just saying, because you don't want to be climbing around on the King of the Monsters very long. They are wearing protective suits, so one can assume maybe they're lead-lined, okay? And then panel two, we see kind of the after-effect, kind of the uh, version of the cover image where they are loading Godzilla onto the Behemoth's holding tank. And uh, they've got uh, two giant harnesses around his midsection, and they're pulling them up with cables. And they've got helicopters and such, uh, kind of flying around, observing. And this is the idea of trying to load Godzilla onto something, especially given the size that we've already seen him, is a logistical nightmare. How exactly are you going to pull this off? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you know what? It doesn't matter because it's cool. And that rule overrules everything. Everybody knows that. So I'm willing to give it a pass. All right, now page 23, panel 1. We see the uh, first time we see the face of the SJ3RX, obviously I think meant to invoke a samurai with his helmet. Uh, makes sense considering that is being built by a Japanese guy in a 1970s comic book that he would use a Japanese design motif. Um, we don't get a f- real full shot of Red Ronin here, but we will in the next issue, so good to see him making his uh, uh, cameo appearance here. Page 26, as Rob climbs in and is trying to uh, use the control helmet, looks kind of like Cerebro a little bit, to control uh, the robot and to reprogram him, he gets what he deserves, as far as I'm concerned, when the feedback knocks him out. What the hell is he doing? I mean, I understand he's a kid and he thinks he knows everything, but it's like, seriously... Why is this kid around here? He, this kid's a troublemaker. I feel, um, you know, like the guards that let this kid sneak in there should probably lose their jobs over this. But, you know, you never can tell. But as far as I'm concerned, he presses the button and uh, gets zapped and is like, good, good. You deserve it. Everything, it's all, it's all your dang fault. Over now on page 27, as Gabe Jones looks on at Godzilla in the uh, holding cell in the secure facility, uh, panel 5 We see a tight close-up of Godzilla's eye and see the red kind of glow um, returning to Godzilla's eye, the glimmer of light as, um, you know, he he comes out of his stupor from the gas. And that leads us directly into the next panel where we're looking over Gabe Jones' shoulder into the cell, and Godzilla is just massive, you know, standing over Gabe. Again, the sense of scale as Godzilla, you know, bears his fangs and is charging at the glass. So, you know... Uh, you know what is about to get real is all I got to say about that. So, uh, and of course he, he busts through and that brings us over, uh, to page 30, panel three, as Godzilla lets out with a torrent of, uh, of radioactive fire. In fact, Mench even says that too late Godzilla belches forth a concentration and the thermal plexolock gauge mylar cage melts like mercury in hell. After all, when all is said and done, it was nothing more than plastic. You know, uh, man thinks that they can control Godzilla, but, you know, Godzilla's kind of in charge. Nature rules man. Man does not rule nature. Uh, fire looks fantastic in this. A uh, great coloring here. And it's all, you know, all, you know, really hot reds and yellows and orange. Godzilla has a great look of fury on his face. Godzilla has absolutely had enough of this crap, you know, and he is just cutting loose. It's a really cool panel. I very much like this one. And then uh, over on page 31, panel four, last panel of the issue, we see Godzilla smash his way out of the secure facility. Again, we see all the uh, shield agents running before him. They're a bit—they're smaller than his toenail. So again, great use of scale. Uh, you can totally visualize this scene in live action with Godzilla busting out of a building. Reminds me a bit of the scenes where Doctor Who has King Kong. Locked up in King Kong Escapes where, because King Kong was a bit smaller in that film, we got to play with the scale and let him be inside of things. So that's what I kind of vision. I can definitely see this as a live-action scene and a very nice cliffhanger to the story here. Overall, very strong transitional story as we're moving away from the Doctor Demonicus kind of superhero stuff and back to what is the basic real premise of the book, which is Godzilla versus S.H.I.E.L.D uh good character moments from gabe and dum-dum which in this time don't interfere with the story they kind of complement the story because we get those moments as they're uh working to uh you know capture godzilla and whatnot um the teasing of the red ronin has me very excited to see him in action against godzilla you know that's why giant robots are there to fight monsters right And Herb Trimpey's return, to me, is a big plus, as his art style is one of the defining aspects that we've gotten so far in the first six issues of this title. A very good issue. I really did enjoy this. And again, this is collected, as are all the issues in Essential Godzilla, uh, Volume 1. In fact, the only volume. Let's take a look at ads real quick. Uh, We've seen a lot of these before. We got the HodgePodge ad. A complete marvelous collection from Simon & Schuster showing some of the big Marvel books of the era. Uh, Let's see, we got the uh, Satisfy Your Meat Tooth for Slim Jim with the Kid Werewolf. Oh, I do like this one. Now, here are your favorite comic book characters. Come alive on these 10 brand new 33 and a 3rd LP albums. And these are Hanna-Barbera characters. So we get Top Cat as Robin Hood. We get the Flintstones meet the orchestra family. Hansel and Gretel as told by the Flintstones. First family on the moon with the Jetsons. Uh, Yogi Bear in Little Red Riding Hood. Alice in Wonderland featuring Magilla Gorilla. Okay. Uh, Wilma Flintstone and the story of Bambi. Huckleberry Hound and the Adventures of Uncle Remus. Snagglepuss and the Wizard of Oz. It's Oz even! The Yellow Brick Road! Oh, just click these fancy heels together. You had the power to go home the whole time. It's all inside of you, Dorothy! And I'll miss the Scarecrow the most of all, even. And Oggy
1: Doggy and Doggy Daddy and the story of
0: Pinocchio.
1: Ah, gee, Dad.
0: These are, these are great. Oh man these are so crazy I I think I found the Robin Hood one online for Top Cat, but I'm I'm not sure because it doesn't match the art here, so maybe the art is a little bit different, but how crazy is this? How, you know, it's just great to see all these Hanna-Barbera characters doing all this crossover stuff like this because now they all kind of exist just in a nostalgia sort of sense. This They were they were here and now, they were hip and now and with it, insofar as the Hanna-Barbera characters were ever hip now and with it. So this was my favorite ad, and I love the little coupon at the bottom. It says, but Dabba Doo, it sounds too good to be true! And then send me the following. So, oh, excellent. Now, the super in the Livingston Bowl in Livingston, New Jersey, and Center Grove Road and Route 10 in Randolph, New Jersey. So these, I, I have got to find more information on these. I'm very, very uh, cool ad here. Uh, continuing on, we get a uh, Marvel subscription ad. Uh, we get two Marvel um, house ad for two Power-packed Marvel magazines. We get the Rampaging Hulk and the Savage Sword of Conan. We get our Clark Bar ad again with the six Clark Bars. Uh, let's see. Another the two-page hodgepodge spread. Uh, we get the uh, Bullpen Bulletins. Uh, bullpen Bulletins. Is, first note is talking about the star—the second Star Wars Treasury Edition, which wraps up the Thomas and Chaikin adaption of Star Wars. Let's see anything else in here talking about um, Marvel 2-in-1, The Defenders, uh, Jack Kirby working on the 100-page Silver Surfer Saga. He and Stan Lee are creating for book publication by Simon & Schuster. Uh, the new art team for X-Men is John Byrne and Terry Austin, along with, of course, Chris Claremont. Uh, so uh, gives you an idea of the timeline there. We do get a... Hostess ad for Thor in the Dingaling Family, and I don't think we've read this one, so I guess we can do a dramatic reading, which I think would go a little something like this. By some mysterious quirk of space and time warp, the Dingaling Family is thrust into Thor's Asgardian orbit. The family leaves a trail of evil doing on Earth. Grandma Dingaling leads them in swooping silently up behind the Asgardians.
1: Let's get them all, Ken! Capture more! Our name's not dingling We know not what hath provoketh thee, strangest family. But if thou dost come amongst us unpleasantness in thy hearts, with unpleasantness thou shalt be met, and then some. By cracky, that purty yellow-haired fellow's the leader. Let's horn-swoggle him, and the rest'll be a piece of cake. Okay, Pa, Ma, Auntie, Sister, Brother, Cousins, be and by, and Grandma, all you ding hold him still, so I can get a beat on him with my atomic shotgun.
0: Thy familial bonds are indeed strong. Pity tis misspent on evil, but tis naught before the fierce power of the mystic mallet Mjolnir.
1: But what's this? The cousins they calleth B and by resisteth the hammer. Hee-hee-hee-haw, Cousin Bi. I think we got em. Sure enough, Cousin B. It's our cousin power, secret weapon. Nothing can resist it when our hands wander a bit, and we lose the concentration, and we goof it up ourselves. Aye. Then, tis but child's play to use this ploy and distract the cousins and by, and by and by, twill be their undoing. Mm, er, ah, uh, uh Aye, look at that, Cousin B. Er, that, Cousin B. What were we saying? Oh, look at that. Delicious hostess fruit pies, apple and cherry, great light tender crust, real fruit-feeling, cousin by I can't recollect what we were talking about, but I—but it couldn't be half as interesting as these mouth-watering hostess fruit pies. You fools, we almost had that yellow-haired one in our power, you dumb cousins.
0: Forsooth, lady, not so dumb they knoweth of yon delicious snack. Now home to Odin. Be sure to save some Hostess Fruit Pies for that great one to enjoy too. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. Wow. Wow. That's all I have to say about this. That is, that's it. I'm moving on. Uh, okay. Let's see. We get Build Muscles Fast, Binoculars. On the back is Talking Patty Prayer Doll who kneels and says her bedtime prayer, they would not be allowed to sell this doll in a comic book nowadays. Uh, Even if little girls did read comics, which, if it's a Marvel comic, I'm not convinced they are. I mean, they have a lot of books that seem to be aimed at girls, but they mostly seem to get read by middle-aged comics. Say how awesome they are for girls. Maybe I'm just the one out of touch. I'm not saying that girls don't read them. I'm saying that Marvel still seems to market them at the same market. They market everything else. But anyway, um... Other than that Hanna-Barbera ad, I'm going to just leave that alone. But good comic, really enjoyable, a lot of fun, and I am very eager to see where this goes if we get to see Godzilla and the Red Ronin tangle next issue, which I'm assuming we are. And uh, I, I said I haven't read ahead. I'm reading these as we do them for the show and very much enjoyed this one. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm still enjoying this series and still eager to see more of it. So uh, I hope you guys are enjoying it, too. If you're reading along, send me an email. What do you think? What's what do you uh, what are your opinions on the Marvel Godzilla series as we've gotten uh, through the first six issues? And uh, we can talk about that. So uh, I'm going to take a quick break right now and we'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back-to-the-vin's
1: taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need <laughs> mine, or am I good where I'm at? Oh, well, now you do. <laughs> if I have <laughs> mine, you have to <laughs> do it. You might
0: want to. <laughs> just, only if you do have it set to automatically, because <laughs> you don't want it to automatically, because <laughs> the <laughs> thing never works right. Because what'll happen is it'll be used to you at a particular time, <laughs> and then if you go out of that. T- it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't a fast enough, so it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay, there. it it really doesn't work well. So I checked. Right. Uh, I checked my. Uh, what do mm-hmm. you call it my! Pre- it definitely mm-hmm. built build me for the hotel for
1: all three of us.
0: Join back to the bins every week for goodness.
1: Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers.
0: All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And right now, I'd like to do a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at Directive at gahoo.com. One little bit of news uh, as far as the Facebook page. I have not got a chance to change the outro yet. However, my uh, Facebook name is no longer Earth Destruction and then Directive. It is now Luke Edd. So if you would like to get in touch with me on Facebook... Uh, please look for Luke as the first name, EdD as the last name. Uh, I did have to update my name on Facebook. Uh, I've still got all my connections and all my pictures and all that up there. So if we were already connected, we shouldn't have to reconnect. And I've left my uh, profile picture the same to kind of help um, help the transition. So uh, like I said, if you need to get in touch with me on Facebook, Luke EdD is a name to look for. Let's get into the email. Our first email comes from my good friend and fellow podcaster Gene Hendricks and is entitled Musical Stylings. Gene writes, Luke, I loved the latest episode, as I always do, about Ultraman. Unfortunately, I'm still way behind in my viewing of these series, so I can't really comment on that. What I can comment on, however, is the Beach Boys segment in the listener feedback section. After hearing you sing that, and mention the great Paul Williams, what popped in my head was, Someday we'll find it, the Kaiju Connection. And Gene goes, if I was talented enough, I'd do the whole song with kaiju lyrics, but sadly I'm not that creative. Oh, come off it, Gene. So I'll just leave you with that little earworm sign. Gene, the Hammer Strikes, the Hammer Podcast, Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks. And so on and so forth. Gene, thank you very much for writing in. I'm glad you enjoyed the Beach Boys touch uh, there. I got a little carried away with some of the music uh, between that and the shag music and some other stuff. But, you know, I'm having fun, and ultimately that's what matters. Um, I've, I haven't i have got the full lyrics yet for Kaiju Connection, but I do have the chorus. You know it. You gave me the first part of it. And it goes, Someday we'll find it, the Kaiju Connection, the monsters, the mecha, and me. You know, look for my album, Luke Ruins, the greatest hits of Paul Williams, on iTunes later this year. <laughs> uh, maybe not. I don't know. But Gene, thank you very much for writing in. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. I hope you get caught up on Ultraman. I, I do want to make one other point. As of early August, Hulu has changed their policies and no longer has a free streaming option. So you cannot I don't know. I don't have a paid membership to Hulu, so I don't know if you can watch Ultraman on Hulu or not anymore. Uh, but I do know that if you go to shoutfactorytv.com, which is the video streaming services for Shout Factory, you can watch Ultraman for free on that service, along with Ultra Q and Ultra 7. So if you want to watch some classic uh, Ultraman, go to shoutfactorytv.com and check it out there. Gene, thank you very much for writing in. And our next email comes from John Kilgallen, and is entitled, Feedback on Episode 47. And John writes, First, let me state that I, too, was reading Marvel's Howling Commandos of S.H.I.E.L.D. Manphibian was the go-to creature for me. Well, that makes three of us, John, and I'm still sad to see that one go. Um, you know, I, I, I knew it was a hard sell in the current Marvel publishing milieu, uh, but I, I'm, I'm still sad to see it go, and that it didn't quite go as long as I would have hoped, but... Uh Anywho, uh, he says, Luke, I truly love your breakdown of the Ultraman episodes, and I thank you for their return in this episode. Uh, just to cut in, John, I'm, I'm trying to do Ultraman episodes regularly just to work my way through the series and also to break up from, you know, your typical Godzilla and Gamera sort of stuff. You know, the, the giant monster genre crosses over nicely with the Kyodai hero, the giant hero genre, and the two of them kind of uh, fit together and go back and forth influencing each other, so I think it's only natural to include that. And I do love Ultraman, so I'm glad you're enjoying it. John continues, Gamakujira reminded me more of a walking blowfish, but I remember Pestar very well from my childhood days in Charleston, South Carolina, Palmetto State represent, rushing in after school to watch it on the color TV set in the living room before Dad would get home from work. The color TV was his, after all. As a kid, it was all about the ships and weapons and monsters of the day fight. From the transformation of the color timer signaling the near death of Ultraman, I was held in Rapture. As an adult enthusiast, aka Monster Kid, I still enjoy DVD marathons on holiday weekends when Godzilla is not taking up screen time. As a kid, I never wondered about the action. As an adult, I'm amazed at the dramatic build-up to near death. When Ultraman could just hit the monster with his Specium Ray from the get, I've got to fight for a little bit before we used the final attack. It's true in tokusatsu and anime and all sorts of things. Uh, John continues reading along with Marvel's Godzilla is also a pleasure. I'm using my copy of the Essential Godzilla, but I had the issues as a kid. Another monthly title I would pay my allowance for at the local book bag bookstore, then pedal my butt furiously home to read and marvel, pun intended. Love your podcast and all things Daikaiju. Keep up the great work. Now I have to listen to that other new podcast. What is it? Oh yeah. Bots, Bugs, and Babes. Signed, John Kilgallen. John, thank you very much for writing in, and I hope you do go check out my brother's podcast, Bots, Bugs, and Babes. Also available on the Two True Freaks podcast. Um, and yeah, and I hear you about the, the DVD marathons for Godzilla and Ultraman. It was funny, just this past Labor Day, the, um, multicast station Comet, which is owned by Sinclair Broadcasting, actually had a Godzilla marathon on Labor Day. They showed uh, Gojira, they showed uh, Godzilla Raids Again, Rodan, Godzilla's Revenge, and Godzilla King of the Monsters. In fact, they're showing other uh, Show a Godzilla films all month on Comet. Um, Comet, I actually get it over the air and through my cable package. So uh, go to I think it's CometTV.com and check it out. You can see it's just cool to see uh, Godzilla movies on TV. They are also showing Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Sunday night, so that's very cool. But uh, like you said, I, I agree with you. It's like how do you, you know, it's, it's they always work it out that he's got to fight and fight, but he could just use the beam from the beginning. But you know that's not the rules. He wants to see if he can solve the problem without using the ultimate attack, I guess. And uh, you know, your um, I love your story about picking up the books, the comics at the uh, at the bookshop and peddling home. I did buy comics off a of spinner rack, but I was in the mid 80s instead of the 70s, so I didn't. Uh, and I was younger because we would go to the 7-Eleven in Danbury as we were um, coming back from either to Danbury Fair Mall or we were going there after working out the Players Health Club there, and uh, which was right near it. And I would buy. I remember buying a lot of Silver Surfer comics off that stand with my mom, and then reading them in the backseat as we were driving back home. So, I'm I'm there with you. I'm a little envious that you got to read these uh, in situ, as it were, back in the day. But I'm glad you're enjoying as we're reading along. I've been using my uh, color copies, but uh, there'll be a couple times I'll have to use the essential where I just simply don't have the uh, the actual comic. And, uh, and go from there. And I hear you also about you watch your shows in the afternoon before, uh, your dad gets home. (laughs) We were doing that even into the eighties at the one TV in the living room and you would go to watch, um, you know, whatever the afternoon shows. Usually a world class championship wrestling on ESPN. Uh but uh yeah, so thank you very much, John. Thank you very much for writing in. Hope you're gonna continue uh listening and uh reading along with us and hope you check out Box Bugs and Babes and, and give that show a try. As I said, if you would like to email into the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective directive at yahoo.com or get in touch with me on Facebook or Twitter. Um, and uh, always glad to hear from you and, and your thoughts, good, bad, otherwise, whether you liked what we're talking about, didn't like what we're talking about, think I'm full of baloney, whatever, just uh send in your feedback and, and we'll discuss that. All right, so what are we covering on the next episode of Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we are going across the pond, and I mean that very literally, as we are headed to merry old England, as we're going to be taking a look at... Gorgo, the uh, film from the Shaw Brothers, which, uh, you know, imported the uh, Japanese giant monster motif to the shores of the United Kingdom. And not only are we going to be watching the film Gorgo, we're also going to be taking a look at issue number one of Gorgo the comic from Charlton with art by Steve Ditko. I'm very excited about this. The, uh, if you want to read the comic, you can go find it because it's in the public domain. Comicbookplus.com is where I use for my uh, public domain comics. But uh, very excited. This is a movie that uh, held in pretty high regard. Some really good effects. Well put together. Uh, giant Monster on the Loose movie. And I'm going to be very uh, much looking forward to talking about it. Going to try to have a guest on. Um, from the context clues, you might be able to figure out who the guest is going to be. Uh, but I don't want to give that away just in case it falls through, you know, these things, these, these podcast negotiations, you know, with the attorneys and, you know, the the terms and conditions and all this, indemnifying clauses and all that. You never can tell they're going to turn out. But planning to have a guest should be a lot of fun. So uh, we're gonna, Godzilla's going to take a break uh, for one month. We're going to give Gorgo the full spotlight with the film and comic treatment. And, uh, of course, we'll have any emails, news, any of that information that comes up, and uh, we'll be here to report it. And if you have any news that you would like to send in, go ahead and send it to me at EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com or hit me up on Facebook or Twitter, and I'll be sure to include it. Uh, All right, that's about all I've got for today. I hope everyone enjoyed the show, and you come back next time for some Gorgo. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyrighted their respective copyright holders. And no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com.